11. World. Iceland possesses the grandest one, but in California there are a great many of these natural hot fountains, most of which throw forth mud as well as water. Some of the American geysers are terrible things to behold. They are generally found near each other, in particular localities, and anyone wandering about among them sees in one place a great pool full of black bubbling contents, so hot that an egg thrown in the spring will be boiled in a minute or two, there he sees another spring throwing up boiling mud a few feet in the air, there another one, quiet now, but which may at any time burst out and send its hot contents high above the heads of the spectators, here a great hole in the ground, out of which constantly issues a column of steam and everywhere are cracks and crevices in the earth, out of which come little jets of steam, and which give the idea that it would not require a very heavy blow to break in at any point, the crust of the earth, and let the adventurous traveler drop down into the boiling mass below. In Iceland the geysers are not quite so terrible in their aspect as those in California, but they are bad enough. Their contents are generally water, some hot and bubbling, and some hot and still, while the great geyser, the grandest work of the kind in the world, bursts forth at times with great violence, sending jets of hot water hundreds of feet into the air. These wonderful hot springs, wherever they have been found, have excited the greatest attention and interest, in travelers and scientific men, and their workings have been explained somewhat in this way, water having gradually accumulated in vast underground crevices and cavities, is heated by the fires, which, in volcanic regions, are not very far from the surface of the earth. If there is a channel or tube from the reservoir to the surface, the water will expand and rise until it fills the basin which is generally found at the mouth of hot springs, but the water beneath, being still further heated, will be changed into steam, which will at times burst out with great force, carrying with it a column of water high into the air. When this water falls back into the basin it is much cooler, on account of its contact with the air, and it cools the water in the basin and also condenses the steam in the tube or channel leading from the reservoir. The spring is then quiet until enough steam is again formed to cause another eruption. A celebrated German chemist named Bunsen constructed an apparatus for the purpose of showing the operations of geysers. Here it is. You see that the two fires in the engraving one lower and larger than the other. Because the heat of the earth increases as we get farther from the surface will heat the water in the iron tube very much as water is heated in a real geyser, and when steam enough is formed, a column of hot water is thrown out of the basin. The great subterranean reservoir is not imitated in this apparatus, but the action is the same as if the tube arose from an iron vessel. There is a great deal in Bunsen's description of this contrivance, in regard to the difference in the temperature of the water in that part of the tube between the two fires and that in the upper portion, which explains the intermittent character of the eruptions of a geyser, but it is not necessary for us to go into all his details, when we know that under a geyser the water is boiling in a great reservoir which communicates with the surface by a natural tube or spout, we need not wonder that occasionally a volume of steam bursts forth, sending a column of water far into the air, a giant puffball, I suppose you have all seen puffballs, which grow in the fields like mushrooms and toadstools, but I am quite sure that you never saw anything of the kind quite so large as that one in the picture, and yet that engraving was made from a drawing from the puffball itself, so we need not suppose that there is anything fanciful about it. The vegetable in question is a kind of fungi called the Gigantilicoperdon, and it attains its enormous size in one night. It springs from a seed so small that you could not see it, and grows, while you are asleep, to be bigger, perhaps, than you are yourself. Think of that. 
How would you like to plant the whole garden, some afternoon, with that kind of seed? Would not your father and mother, and everybody else, be astounded when they woke up and saw a couple of hundred of those things, as big as barrels, filling up every bed? They would certainly think it was the most astonishing crop they had ever seen, and there might be people who would suppose that fairies or magicians had been about. The great trouble about such a crop would be that it would be good for nothing. I cannot imagine what anyone would do with a barn full of lycopertons, but it would be wonderfully interesting to watch the growth of such a fungus. You could see it grow. In one night you could see its whole life. From almost nothing at all to that enormous ball in the picture. Nature could hardly show us a more astonishing sight than that, tickled by a straw, from his dreams of tops and marbles, where the soaring kites he saw, is that little urchin wakened, tickled by a wheaten straw, how do you suppose he likes it, young one with annoying paw, if I only were your mother, I'd tickle you with perch and straw, soon enough, from pleasant dreaming, you'll be wakened by the law, which provides for every vision some sort of provoking straw, in dreams of play, or hope or loving, when plans of happiness you draw, underneath your nose may wiggle life's most aggravating straw the light in the castle, on a high hill, in a lonely part of Europe, there stood a ruined castle, no one lived there, for the windows were destitute of glass, there were but few planks left of the floors, the roof was gone, and the doors had long ago rotted off their hinges, so that any persons who should take up their residence in this castle would be exposed to the rain, when there was a storm, to the wind, when it blew, and to robbers, if they should come, besides running the risk of breaking their necks by falling between the rafters, every time they attempted to walk about the house, it was a very solemn, lonely, and desolate castle, and for many and many a year no human being had been known to set foot inside of it, it was about ten o'clock of a summer night that Hubert Flannery and his sister Helda were returning to their home from an errand to a distant village, where they had been belated, their path led them quite near to the ruined castle, but they did not trouble themselves at all on this account, for they had often passed it, both by night and day, but tonight they had scarcely caught sight of the venerable structure when Hubert started back, and, seizing his sister's arm, exclaimed, look, Helda, look, a light in the castle, little Helda looked quickly in the direction in which her brother was pointing, and, sure enough, there was a light moving about the castle as if someone was inside, carrying a lantern from room to room, the children stopped and stood almost motionless. What can it be? Hubert, whispered Helda. I don't know, said he. It may be a man, but he could not walk where there are no floors. I'm afraid it's a ghost. Would a ghost have to carry a light to see by? Asked Helda. I don't know, said Hubert, trembling in both his knees. But I think he is coming out. It did seem as if the individual with the light was about to leave the castle. That one moment he would be seen near one of the lower windows, and then he would pass along on the outside of the walls, and directly Hubert and Helda both made up their minds that he was coming down the hill. Had we better run? said Helda. Mumber, replied her brother. Let's hide in the bushes. So they hid. In a few minutes Hubert grasped his sister by the shoulder. He was trembling so much that the bushes shook as if there was a wind. Helda, he whispered. He's walking along the brook. Right on top of the water. Is he coming this way? Said Helda, who had wrapped her head in her apron. Right straight, cried Hubert. Give me your hand, Helda. And, without another word, the boy and girl burst out of the bushes and ran away like rabbits. When Helda, breathless, fell down on the grass, 
Hubert also stopped and looked behind him. They were near the edge of the brook, and there, coming right down the middle of the stream, was the light which had so frightened them. Oh, age, bother, said Hubert. What? asked poor little Hilda, looking up from the ground. Why, it's only a jack-o'-lantern, said Hubert. Let's go home, Hilda. As they were hurrying along the path to their home, Hubert seemed very much provoked, and he said to his sister, Hilda, it was very foolish for you to be frightened at such a thing as that. Me, said Hilda, opening her eyes very wide. I guess you were just as much frightened as I was. You might have known that no real person would be wandering about the castle at night, and a ghost couldn't carry anything, for his fingers are all smoke. You ought to have known that too, I should say, Mr. Hubert answered Helda, and then, I don't believe the light was in the castle at all, it was just bobbing about between us and the castle, and we thought it was inside, you ought to have thought of that, Helda, me, exclaimed little Helda, her eyes almost as big as two silver dollars, it always seems to me a great pity that there should be such boys as Hubert Flamry, the oak tree, I really don't know which liked the great oak best, Harry or his grandfather, Harry was a sturdy little fellow, seven years old, and could play ball, and fly kites, and all such things, when he had anybody to play with, but his father's house was a long distance from the village, and so he did not often have playmates, and it is poor sport to play marbles or ball by oneself, he did sometimes roll his hoop or fly his kite when alone, but he would soon get tired, and then, if it was a clear day, he would most likely say, Grandpa, don't you want to go to the big oak? And Grandpa would answer, of course, child, we will go. I am always glad to give you that pleasure, this he said, but everybody knew he liked to go for his own pleasure too. So Harry would bring Grandpa his cane and hat, and away they would go down the crooked path through the field. When they got to the drawbars, Harry took them down for his Grandpa to pass through, and then put them carefully up again, so that the cows should not get out of the pasture. And, when this was done, there they were at the oak tree, this was a very large tree, indeed, and its branches extended over the road quite to the opposite side, right at the foot of the tree was a clear, cold spring, from which a little brook trickled, and lost itself in the grass, a dipper was fastened to a projecting root above the spring, that thirsty travelers might drink, the road by the side of which the oak stood was a very public one, for it led to a city twenty miles away, so a great many persons passed the tree, and stopped at the spring to drink, and that was the reason why little Harry and his grandpa were so fond of going there, it was really quite a lively place, carriages would bowl along, all glittering with plate and glass, and with drivers in livery, market wagons would rattle by with geese squawking, ducks quacking, and pigs squealing, horsemen would gallop past on splendid horses, hay wagons would creak slowly by, drawn by great oxen, and, best of all, the stage would dash furiously up, with the horses in a swinging trot, and the driver cracking his whip, and the bright red stage swaying from side to side, it generally happened that somebody in the stage wanted a drink from the spring, and Harry would take the cup handed out of the window, and dip it full of the cold, sparkling water, and then there would be a few minutes of friendly chat, but the most of the talk was with the foot passengers, the old man sat on a bench in the cool shade, and the child would run about and play until someone came along. Then he would march up to the tree and stand with his hands in his pockets to hear what was said, very often having a good deal to say himself. Sometimes these people would stay a long time under the shade of the tree, 
and there were so many different people, and they had so many different kinds of things to say, that Harry thought it was like hearing a book read, only a great deal better, at one time it would be a soldier, who had wonderful things to tell of the battles he had fought, another day it would be a sailor, who, while smoking his pipe, would talk about the trackless deserts of burning sands, and of the groves of cinnamon, and all sweet spices, where bright colored parrots are found, and of the great storms at sea, when the waves dashed ships to pieces, another time a foreigner would have much to say about the strange people and customs of other lands, and sometimes they talked in a strange language, and could not be understood, and that was very amusing, the organ grinders were the best, for they would play such beautiful tunes, and perhaps there would be children who would tinkle their tambourines, and sing the songs that the girls sing in Italy when they tread out the grapes for wine, and sometimes there would be oh, joy, a monkey, and then what fun Harry would have, and sometimes there were poor men and women, tired and sick, who had nothing to say but what was sad, occasionally an artist would stop under the tree, he would have a great many of his sketches with him, which he would show to Harry and Grandpa, and then he would go off to a distance, and make a picture of the splendid oak, with the old man and child under it, and perhaps he would put into it some poor woman with her baby, who happened to be there, and some poor girl drinking out of the spring, and Harry and Grandpa always thought this better than any of the other pictures he showed them, the seaside, the ocean is so wonderful itself, that it invests with some of its peculiar interest the very sands and rocks that lie upon its edges, there is always something to see at the seaside, whether you walk along the lonely coast, go down among the fishermen, and their nets and boats, or pass along the sands, lively with crowds of many colored bathers, but if there was nothing but the grand old ocean itself, it would be enough, whether it is calm and quiet, just rolling in steadily upon the shore, in long lines of waves, which come sweeping and curling upon the beach and then breaking, spread far out over the sand or whether the storm waves, tossing high their lofty heads, come rushing madly upon the coast, dashing themselves upon the sands and thundering up against the rocks, the sea is grand, what a tremendous thing an ocean is, ever in powerful motion, so wonderful and awful in its unknown depths, and stretching so far, far, far away, but, even on the coasts of this great ocean, our days seem all too short, as we search among the rocks and in the little pools for the curiosities of the seaside, here are shells, and shells, and shells, from the great conch, which you put up to your ear to hear the sound of the sea within, to the tiny things which we find stored away in little round cases, which are all fastened together in a string, like the rattles of a snake, in the shallow pools that have been left by the tide we may find a crab or two, perhaps, some jellyfish, starfish, and those wonderful living flowers, the sea anemones, and then we will watch the great gull sweeping about in the air, and if we are lucky, we may see an army of little fiddler crabs marching along, each one with one claw in the air, we may gather seaside diamonds, we may, perhaps, go in and bathe, and who can tell everything that we may do on the shores of the grand old ocean, and if we ever get among the fishermen, then we are sure to have good times of still another kind, then we shall see the men who live by the sea, and on the sea, we shall wander along the shore, and look at their fishing vessels, which seem so small when they are on the water, but which loom up high above our heads when they are drawn up on the shore some with their clumsy looking rudders hauled up out of danger, and others with rudder and keel resting together on the rough beach, anchors, boys, bits of chains, and hawsers lie about the shore, 
while nets are hanging at the doors of the fishermen's cottages, some hung up to dry and some hung up to mend. Here we may often watch the fishermen putting out to sea in their dirty, but strong, little vessels, which go bouncing away on the waves, their big sails appearing so much too large for the boats that it seems to us, every now and then, as if they must certainly topple over, and then, at other times, we will see the fishermen returning, and will be on the beach when the boats are drawn up on the sand, and the fish, some white, some gray, some black, but all glittering and smooth, are tumbled into baskets and carried up to the houses to be salted down, or sent away fresh for the markets, then the gulls come circling about the scene, and the ducks that live at the fishermen's houses come waddling down to see about any little fishes that may be thrown away upon the sand, and men with tarpaulin coats and flannel shirts sit on old anchors and lean up against the boats, smoking short pipes while they talk about cod, and mackerel, and mainsails and booms, and, best of all, the delightful sea breeze comes sweeping and browning our cheeks, reddening our blood, and giving us such a splendid appetite that even the fishermen themselves could not throw us very far into the shade, at meal times, as for bathing in the sea, plunging into the surf, with the waves breaking over your head and the water dashing and sparkling all about you, I need not say much about that, I might as well try to describe the pleasure of eating a saucer of strawberries and cream, and you know I could not do it, there are nations who never see the ocean, nor have anything to do with it, they have not even a name for it, they are to be pitied for many things, but for nothing more than this, the sick pike, there is no reason why a pike should not be sick, everything that has life is subject to illness, but it is very seldom that any fish has the good sense and the good fortune of the pike that I am going to tell you about, this pike was a good sized fellow, weighing about six pounds, and he belonged to the Earl of Stamford, who lived near Durham, England, his story was read by Dr. Warwick to the Literary and Philosophical Society of Liverpool. I am particular about these authorities because this story is a little out of the common run. Dr. Warwick was walking by a lake, in the Earl's Park, and the pike was lying in the water near the shore, probably asleep, at any rate. When it saw the doctor it made a sudden dart into deep water and dashed its head against a sunken post. This accident seemed to give the fish great pain, for it pitched and tossed about in the lake and finally rushed up to the surface and threw itself right out of the water onto the bank. The doctor now stooped to examine it, and to his surprise the fish remained perfectly quiet in his hands. He found that the skull was fractured and one eye was injured by the violence with which the fish had struck the post. With a silver toothpick he had not his instruments with him the doctor arranged the broken portion of the pike's skull, and when the operation was completed he placed the fish in the water. For a minute or two the pike seemed satisfied but then it jumped out of the water onto the bank again. The doctor put the fish back, but it jumped out again, and repeated this performance several times. It seemed to know and how. I am sure I had not the least idea that that man was a doctor, and it did not intend to leave him until it had been properly treated just as if it was one of his best patients. The doctor began to see that something more was expected of him, and so he called a gamekeeper to him, and with his assistance he put a bandage around the pike's head. When the surgical operation had been completed the pike was put back into the water, and this time it appeared perfectly satisfied, and swam away. The next day, as Dr. Warwick was sitting by the lake, the pike, with the bandage around its head, swam up and stuck its head out of the water, near the doctor's feet. The good physician took up the fish, examined the wound, and finding that it was getting on very well, 
replaced the bandage and put Mr. Pike into the lake again. This was a very grateful Pike. After the excellent surgical treatment it received from Dr. Warwick, it became very fond of him, and whenever he walked by the side of the lake it would swim along by him, and although it was quite shy and gloomy when other people came to the waterside, it was always glad to see the doctor, and would come when he whistled, and eat out of his hand, I suppose in the whole ocean, and in all the rivers and lakes of the world, there are not more than two or three fish as sensible and grateful as the spike, in fact. It was very well for Dr. Warwick that there were no more such on the Earl of Stamford's estate. A large practice in the lake must soon have made a poor man of him, for I do not suppose that even that sensible pike would have paid a doctor's bill, if it had been presented to him. Two kinds of blossoms, when the winter has entirely gone, and there is not the slightest vestige left of snow or ice, when the grass is beginning to be beautifully green, and the crocuses and jonquils are thrusting their pretty heads up out of the ground when the sun is getting to be quite warm and the breeze is very pleasant, then is the time for blossoms, then it is especially the time for apple blossoms, not that the peach and the pear and the cherry trees do not fill their branches with pink and white flowers, and make as lovely a spring opening as any apple trees in the land, oh no, it is only because there are so many apple trees and so many apple orchards, that the peaches and pears are a little overlooked in blossom time, a sweet place is the apple orchard, when the grass is green, the trees are full of flowers, the air full of fragrance, and when every breeze brings down the most beautiful showers of flowery snow, and how beautiful and delicate is every individual flower, we are so accustomed to looking at blossoms in the mass at trees full and whole orchards full that we are not apt to think that those great heaps of pink and loveliness are composed of little flowers, each one perfect in itself, and not only is each blossom formed of the most beautiful white petals, shaded with pink, not only does each one of them possess a most pleasant and delicate perfume, but every one of these little flowers every one which comes to perfection, I mean is but the precursor of an apple, this one may be a golden pippin, that one which looks just like it may be the forerunner of a bell flower, while the little green speck at the bottom of this one may turn into a russet, with his sober coat, the birds that are flying among the branches do not think much about the apples that are to come, I reckon, and neither do the early butterflies that flutter about, looking very much like falling blossoms themselves, and, for that matter, we ourselves need not think too much about the coming apple crop, we ought sometimes to think of and enjoy beauty for its own sake, without reference to what it may do in the future for our pockets and our stomachs, there are other kinds of blossoms than apple blossoms, or those of any tree whatever, there are little flowers which bloom as well or better in winter than in summer, and which are not, in fact, flowers at all, these are ice blossoms, perhaps you had never seen any of them, and I think it is very likely, for they can only be formed and perceived by the means of suitable instruments, and so here is a picture of some ice blossoms, these curious formations, some of which appear like stars, others like very simple blossoms, while others are very complex, and some of which take the form of fir leaves, are caused to appear in the center of a block of ice by means of concentrated rays of lights which are directed through the ice by means of mirrors and lenses, sometimes they are observed by means of a magnifying glass, and in other experiments their images are thrown upon a white screen, we may consider these ice flowers as very beautiful and very wonderful, but they are not a whit more so than our little blossoms of the apple orchard, the latter are more common, and have to produce apples, while the ice flowers are uncommon, and of no possible use, that is the difference between them, about glass, 
Glass is so common and so cheap that we never think of being grateful for it. But if we had lived a few centuries ago, when the richest people had only wooden shutters to their windows, which, of course, had to be closed whenever it was cold or stormy, making the house as dark as night, and had then been placed in a house lighted by glass windows, we would scarcely have found words to express our thankfulness. It would have been like taking a man out of a dreary prison and setting him in the bright world of God's blessed sunshine. After a time men made small windows of stones that were partly transparent, and then they used skins prepared something like parchment, and finally they used sashes similar to ours, but in them they put oiled paper, and when that last glass came into use, it was so costly that very few were able to buy it, and they had it taken out of the windows and stored carefully away when they went on a journey, as people now store away pictures and silver plate. Now, when a boy wants a clear, white glass vial for any purpose, he can buy it for five cents, and for a few pennies a little girl can buy a large box of colored beads that will make her a necklace to go several times around her neck, and bracelets besides, these her elder sister regards with contempt, but there was a time when queens were proud to wear such, the oldest article of glass manufacture in existence is a bead, it has an inscription on it, but the writing, instead of being in letters, is in tiny little pictures, here you see the bead, and the funny little pictures on it, the pictures mean this, the good Queen Rimika, the loved of a third, protectress of Tebes, this Queen Rimika was the wife of a king who reigned in Tebes more than 3000 years ago, which is certainly a very long time for a little glass bead to remain unbroken, the great city of Tebes, where it was made, has been in ruins for hundreds of years, no doubt this bead was part of a necklace that Queen Rimika wore, and esteemed as highly as ladies now value their rubies, it was found in the ruins of Tebes by an Englishman. It may be thought that the speed contradicts what has been said about there being a time when glass was unknown, and that time only a few centuries ago. But it is a singular fact that a nation will perfectly understand some art or manufacture that seems absolutely necessary to men's comfort and convenience, and yet this art in time will be completely lost, and things that were in common use will pass as completely out of existence as if they had never been, until in after ages, some of them will be found among the ruins of cities and in old tombs, in this way we have found out that ancient nations knew how to make a great many things that enabled them to live as comfortably and luxuriously as we do now, but these things seem to have perished with the nations who used them, and for centuries people live comfortlessly without them, until, in comparatively modern times, they have all been revived, glass making is one of these arts, it was known in the early ages of the world's history. There are pictures that were painted on tombs 2000 years before Christ's birth which represent men blowing glass, pretty much as it is done now, while others are taking pots of it out of the furnaces in a melted state. But in those days it was probably costly, and not in common use, but the rich had glass until the first century after Christ, when it disappeared, and the art of making it was lost. The city of Venice was founded in the 5th century. And here we find that glass making had been revived. You will see by this picture of a Venetian bottle how well they succeeded in the manufacture of glass articles. Venice soon became celebrated for this manufacture, and was for a long time the only place where glass was made. The manufacturers took great pains to keep their art a secret from other nations, and so did the government, because they were all growing rich from the money it brought into the city. In almost any part of the world to which you may chance to go you will find silica. You may not know it by that name, but it is that shining, flinty substance you see in sand and rock crystal. 
it is found in a very great number of things besides these two, but these are the most common. Lime is also found everywhere in earth, in stones, in vegetables and bones, and hundreds of other substances. Soda is a common article, and is very easily produced by artificial means. Potash, which has the same properties as soda, exists in all ashes, now silica, and lime, and soda, or potash, when melted together, form glass. So you see that the materials for making this substance which adds so much to our comfort and pleasure are freely given to all countries, and after Venice had set the example, other nations turned their attention to the study of glass making, and soon found out this fact, in spite of the secrecy of the Venetians, after a time the Germans began to manufacture glass, and then the Bohemians, the latter invented engraving on glass, which art had also been known to the ancients, and then been lost. They also learned to color glass so brilliantly that Bohemian glass became more fashionable than Venetian, and has been highly thought of down to the present day. On the next page we see an immense drinking glass of German manufacture, but this one was made many years after glass making was first started there. This great goblet, which it takes several bottles of wine to fill, was passed around at the end of a feast, and every guest was expected to take a sip out of it. This was a very social way of drinking but I think on the whole it is just as well that it has gone out of fashion. The old Egyptians made glass bottles, and so did the early Romans, and used them just as we do for a very great variety of things. Their wine bottles were of glass, sealed and labeled like ours. We might suppose that, having once had them, people would never be without glass bottles. But history teeth.